1999, a young surgeon from Baghdad named Munjid al-Madaris was forced to flee the country and Saddam Hussein's regime after he refused orders to mutilate a group of draft dodgers who had been brought to the medical center where he worked by Saddam's soldiers. Today, he lives in safety in Australia and is one of the world's leading osteointegration surgeons. He develops fantastic medical procedures which allow amputees to walk again. In this conversation, I speak with Munjad about his escape from Iraq to Australia, his time as a refugee in detention, and Australia's asylum process. I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast. These conversations are supported by the Andrew von Brown Foundation. If you enjoy them and find them valuable, the best way you can help me out is by subscribing, liking, and sharing this content. And now, I'm pleased to bring you Professor Munjad Amadaris. I hope you enjoy. Escaped Sapiens. So what I want to do ultimately is I want to ask you all the questions in the world about osteointegration and advanced prosthetics. But to start with, I have to ask you about your background. Right? Okay. So you were a refugee, an asylum seeker coming to Australia. How did you end up in that position? How did you end up a refugee and how did you end up here uh, of all places in the world? Yeah, look, I didn't choose to come to Australia, to be honest. Um, um, I didn't choose to become a refugee. I didn't choose to seek asylum. <clears throat> I was very comfortably living in Iraq. I even went to medical school, graduated from medicine and uh, uh, became a, a junior doctor in Iraq and never thought about leaving the country. I thought about maybe going somewhere and do specialization and then come back. Uh, because I always wanted to live in Iraq. And to be honest, no one um, live in an environment, regardless of how bad it is, um, if they're surrounded by family, friends, comfortable with their own surrounding, no one would want to leave uh, their comfort zone. So the last thing I thought about is is leaving Iraq. However, circumstances changed where in one day um, I was a medical um, doctor in, in the operating theater, a junior medical doctor, where we were confronted with um, three busloads of army deserters escorted by Republican guards and Ba'ath Party members, the, the Arab Ba'ath uh, Socialist Party from that belonged to Saddam Hussein regime. And they um, brought these um, army deserters and they ordered us to abandon the elective lists and uh, start mutilating these uh, soldiers by chopping their ears off. The head of the department refused openly, so they took him outside in front of everybody to the car park and they put a bullet in his head, as simple as that. Then they turned to the rest of us and they said, anyone share this man's view, come forward, otherwise proceed with our orders. I had to face the most challenging decision in my life. Should I obey obey the commands and live with guilt for the rest of my life by uh, violating every single principle I was brought up on? Um, um, Should I refuse and end up with a bullet in my head or should I run away? and I decided to escape. From there onward, I turned from being a junior medical officer in Baghdad, living relatively comfortably, considering the circumstances, to someone who's running for my life, um, escaping from the authorities of Saddam Hussein. And um, they came and raided our house, interrogated my mother, um, and they couldn't find me there because I escaped. And um, so I had to hide in a village uh, outside uh, Baghdad in the west uh, part of Iraq and um, um, I stayed there for several days until my family managed to gather large sum of money, US dollars, cash, and um, um, uh, forged a passport for me and they managed to smuggle me outside the country to Jordan. So, so had the security situation in Iraq been deteriorating? Was this sort of normalized behavior from the guards at that point or was this sort of a real shock and something you wouldn't have expected at that point in your life? Saddam Hussein, during his um, uh, control of Iraq of 35 years, have done many crazy things. So um, the unusual um, uh, you know, example of um, uh, atrocity that can be committed um, um, to the the and, uh, you know, the individual um, human being, that may sound hor- horrible, it's a common occurrence in Iraq. Uh, so it's not not that unusual to see some horrific decision by Saddam and his uh, uh, regime to uh, 
uh, to commit um, an atrocity or um, uh, or make a decision that uh, um, uh, would be violating human rights. I mean, public executions were common. Um, people who deserved the army, they used to be uh, taking away from their uh, homes. They would run a sham trial uh, very quickly within days and then they um, they used to come in uh, cars with um, uh, with loudspeakers announcing that a public execution will be carried out at the Ba'ath Party um, headquarters in the local uh, suburb and uh, would encourage everybody to come and watch and usually they would um, get the individual um, victim and gather his family, force them to watch it and uh, sign a piece of paper denouncing that individual and making them pay for the bullet that shot the the person. So it's it's horrible. These are these are things that um, I grew up watching and um, and witnessing. Um, so um, when I was confronted with these army deserters, uh, this was not the first time uh, that uh, it happened before um, uh, in in the years before that. Um, but I never witnessed that uh, in person. That was the first incidence where I had to face it myself, and I had to, uh, and I was asked to perform it, mm-hmm. and um, and I couldn't be part of it. Had you then thought about this as a possibility? Is this something you had knew was maybe realistic if you were in this field, or is it not? Is it something that was so rare at the time that you hoped you'd never? Well, look the the. Occurrence of uh, such uh, acts uh, by um, uh, Saddam's regime um, are not uh, often, but not infrequent. Mm. Uh, so they happened, uh, and they happened in uh, on several occasions. Um, I must admit, um, it never came to my mind that I will be faced with such a thing. Um, so I wasn't prepared for it, but obviously. Uh, in a matter of seconds, I had to make a decision, mm-hmm. and my decision was very clear uh, because um, I I had promised myself before um, uh, one of the things that I promised myself that I would never serve in the Iraqi army, mm-hmm. and um, that was a commitment that I made uh, myself, and um, several members of my family have made, and, um, and they have deserted the army or um, um, you know uh, failed to. Um, Conscript, because uh, in Iraq, um, um, military conscription is mandatory. Uh, so whenever you finish, so I had um, managed to um, get into the training program and managed to escape um, serving in the army uh, by just the virtue of uh, uh, excelling in my work and and making myself um, being more valuable to. Um, uh, to the medical fraternity where um, mm-hmm. I don't have to go and, and serve um, in the army. So that's how I escaped. My cousin, um, who um, was a lawyer, uh, he um, uh, was, after he, uh, he, he uh, despite that in high school, he came second rank in, in the baccalaureate in Iraq. So he topped uh, the, the, the country uh, and he entered uh, the law uh, school, but he deliberately made the law school instead of four years, he made it ten years, mm-hmm. um, just so he doesn't serve. And then, and then time had to come when he had to graduate, mm-hmm. um, and then when he graduated, he ran away and escaped mm-hmm. to Germany. So um, uh, and didn't serve a day in the army. So we had the same kind of opinion about serving in the Iraqi army because uh, of what happened with mm-hmm. the invasion of uh, Iran, the invasion of uh, Kuwait, mm-hmm. and um, all the atrocities that was committed against the Kurds uh, mm-hmm. by the Iraqi army, so we didn't want to be involved in any uh, any of that. So um, it's based on a principle, and um, my principle was always that I would not participate in any kind of uh, atrocity that violate the human rights. Mm-hmm. But so then on the ground when this is happening to you and you're in the mix, in, in sort of in the thick of it, how, do you, how did you get away from the guards? How did, how did you end up sneaking away? And so basically it was a theater complex uh, and uh, there were many people around. So I had to hide in the female toilet. I sneaked to the female toilets and I stayed there for five hours. They felt like five years. 
and I was just waiting for the knock on the door um, in any minutes. And um, obviously they were busy carrying on mm -hmm. the um, uh, the operation. So, um, and then when I noticed that there was no much movement happening, I uh, walked out and um, um, it's a big, the university complex is massive. Okay. Like there are multiple buildings. So I didn't go to the car park because I was worried that my car will be, um, uh, you know, uh, searched. Um, I mean, it was a long shot, but um, and I rather um, to be safe. So I went to the um, taxi rank and then uh, picked up a, a cab. And then from there onward, met a met a friend um, in uh, Harthia, in a place uh, northern part, um, uh, uh, north um, west part of um, Baghdad. And um, and we went to Chili's actually. Uh, we had a burger there, <laughs> and then um, and then he um, uh, basically um, um, escorted me to um, uh, to a village where we had a, uh, another friend, and um, and I stayed at his place um, um, in a farm, mm -hmm. and then they managed to communicate with my cousin and my mother, and um, and then I didn't even get to see my mum. Yeah, and then. Um, they gathered the money and and the passport, and then um, they put me on a bus uh, on the way to um, uh, to the borders with uh, Jordan. And I, I imagine the whole way there, you're freaking out, worried that you'll be caught, or well, if I get caught, uh, it would be execution, basically, because I um, uh, failed to um, to attend. I was accounted for in theaters on that day, and I failed to perform the procedures and. Um, and they, when they came raiding my house, um, they told my mum that uh, he is, um, um, you know, um, he's disobeying commands. So, um, um, and that will face serious consequences. And uh, usually, when you disobey Saddam's commands, um, it's an execution sentence, sentence, basically. So then, how did you decide where to go? As in, when you were leaving the country, what was the destination? So there was no destination. I went to Jordan. Uh, Jordan was not safe back then. It was the backyard of the Iraqi intelligence services, um, and um, um, so I had to um, uh, find a place that would take me. And uh, Malaysia was the only country on this planet that would give an Iraqi national with half decent passport a visa. So I. Um, bought a ticket to Kuala Lumpur and um, uh, and boarded a plane, and um, that um, trip was um, uh, going through um, uh, basically uh, transit in Abu Dhabi, and we landed in Abu Dhabi, and um, I met in the transit. What happened as we were departing the plane? Um, uh, what you will hear is something that is very unusual. Um, Iraqi nationals. Um, were asked by the air crew uh, to um, hand over our passports. So they confiscated our passports um, as we were coming out of the plane in the transit area, uh, which is something that I've never seen. I've, I've traveled all around the world um, um, since and uh, never seen that happen. So um, these two young men that I met, they were they looked very, uh, um, you know, uh, they looked like handymen. They they had very rough skin on their hands uh, with a lot of oil under their nail beds. So, um, uh, and they couldn't speak a word of English. And um, I sat beside them and they were very nervous and very shaken by um, the situation. And I started talking to them and um, they realized that I could speak a little bit of English by me communicating with um, other uh, uh, people. And, um, and I asked them the question and I said, where are you guys going? And they looked at me very suspiciously and they said, why are you asking that question? We are tourists, we're going for holidays. And I looked at them and I said, yeah, right. Uh, you look very touristy to me. You don't speak a word of English. Um, and then they talked to each other and then they looked at me and they said, well, if you um, uh, come with us as an interpreter, we can take you with our journey. Uh, with us in our journey, and um, and I said, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I have nowhere to go, and I <laughs> ran away from Iraq, so um, I'm at your mercy, and I will do whatever it takes to help you. So they had a piece of paper with a number written on it, and that was um, a number of a people smuggler. When we landed in Kuala Lumpur, uh, we uh, got through security. Uh, funny enough, one of the guys, his passport was 
ending in a few days. And he had trouble going through the checkpoint, uh, through the custom, uh, so, sorry, the, the passport officer. And I kind of uh, managed to convince the passport officer that I will take him to the nearest, um, to, the, uh, to the Iraqi embassy and renew his passport straight away um, because he wouldn't want to let him in. Um, eventually, they let us through. Um, we picked up the phone, dialed the number, and it was uh, on the other line, a gentleman who uh, is, uh, introduced himself as Mahdi, the smuggler. And that was my first encounter with a people smuggler. He um, um, asked us to, um, to meet him in a place called Chowkit, uh, which is um, in downtown uh, Kuala Lumpur. And he said, um, get a taxi there. I will meet you. I'll be standing in front of McDonald's and I'll be wearing a hat uh, a brown shirt, a brown shorts, and you will recognize me. We got out of the taxi and I uh, looked at this guy and he was blonde blue eyes, uh, you know, he looked like Steve Irwin. And um, I started talking to him in English and he found me ridiculous. And he said, why are you speaking English? Speak Arabic. And uh, he turned up to be an Iraqi Kurd. And um, he took us aside uh, to uh, a coffee shop and Literally within 10 minutes, he said, where are you guys from? I said, we're from Baghdad. And the other guy said, I'm from the south, um, one from Basra, one from Omara. And, um, and he said, okay, well, give me a passport. And uh, you need to get me, um, uh, I think it was $3,000 or something each. Um, and, um, and I will get back to you tomorrow with your next destination. And... I put my hand up and I said, hang on, can I ask you a question? And he said, yes. Um, he said, well, I met you like 10 minutes ago. How do you expect me to trust you with my passport and this amount of money that you will come back? And he looked at me and he got so offended. And he said, how dare you question my credibility? I'm a respectable smuggler. And um, I have a reputation to protect. And it was like uh, hilarious. And, uh, and, then, and then he said, well, do you have any other option? And I thought about it and I said, no, I don't. And I have to trust you. And he said, yes, that's the way you go. You don't have any other choice. So we handed him over the passport. And obviously that was a very nervous night uh, because uh, you know I'll be stuck in KL. I can't even go to an Iraqi embassy over there because um, um, uh, I'm escaping from Iraq. Uh, so we had to put our trust in this guy. Eventually he came the next day and he was um, a respectable smuggler, as he promised. He came with a, um, a visa to, uh, to Indonesia um, and plane tickets uh, with Garuda Airlines. And um, he said, um, and a small piece of paper with a number on it. And he said, the next destination is Jakarta. And he wasn't just respectable in coming back, but he was very accurate as well. He said, when you get through Jakarta airport, don't go to the guy with the beard, don't go to the guy with the multiple stars, don't go to the lady with, uh, with the head cover, go to the guy with uh, one star and make sure that um, when you get through, um, when you hand over your passport, put $100 inside the passport. And I looked at him and I said, hang on, are you expecting me to bribe a custom officer in a major international airport? And he said, yes, do you have a problem with that? And I said, well, I just wanted to check um, that I heard you correctly. Anyway, I mean, and that was the second trip. Uh, so we took the trip to uh, Indonesia and um, it was exactly as he described it. And um, it went very smooth. We went through the checkpoint and we dialed the number and there was a different person called Omid the smuggler this time. And um, it was in a, um, a hotel, um, um, rundown hotel six-story building and we entered the foyer and they were like tens of Middle Eastern looking people um, and the situation was very very dire over there and looked like like very depressive everybody was uh, like depressed and um, uh, we started talking to people and a lot of them have been there stuck for months and months running uh, run out of uh, their money and um, living on um, borrowing money from each other to support each other and um, it was very very bad and i thought i'm going to be stuck here um, but then the two guys with me um, saved my life basically because they started telling 
people that this guy is a doctor. And I took my keys and went to my room and I thought, that's it, I'm gonna be stuck in this place. Um, and then there was a knock on my door and um, opened the door and there was this guy with a beard, short guy, uh, with um, a black trousers and black shirt. And he said, oh, you're the doctor. And I said, yeah, I am a doctor, what can I do for you? And um, and he said, well, I pray to God that God will provide me with a, 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 a an imam or a mullah. Um, and he's coming from Iran tomorrow. And I pray to God that God will provide me with a doctor and you're the doctor. I said, okay, I don't put two thing, <laughs> um, these things together. What can I do for you? How can I help you? And he said, um, well, I have a brand new boat going to Australia in two days. And I want a mullah to uh, help calming the waters and uh, by his prayers and I want a doctor to look after the people on the boat so because I'm a caring person I care about people I said well okay um, and the boat is going to Australia and that was the first time ever I hear about Australia so I didn't choose to come to Australia and um, and this these people smugglers told us where to go basically so the people who were waiting in the room who, who are they are they are they wealthy people? Are they people that have also run up against the Bath Party? Are they who, who gets to this position in, in life? People who were waiting in the foyer were people from all around the world. They were Iraqis. They were Afghanis. They were Sri Lankans. Uh, they were um, people from um, North uh, Northern Africa. Um, obviously, it's very clear that people who got to that foyer would have means. Uh, mm -hmm. because they wouldn't uh, be able to get on a plane and um, and travel. Um, so clearly they were well off to some extent. Um, but they were from different backgrounds, um, different um, uh, nationalities, uh, different faiths, uh, different genders, different or, uh, sexual orientation. Um, like I'll give you an example, there were uh, some Iranian um, 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 person who was, um, uh, you know, um, a, a homosexual that escaped from Iran. Um, there were some Iraqis who were escaping from Saddam regime, uh, uh, like um, um, from um, Shia uh, background. Uh, or Sunni background um, it depends on um, uh, the faith. Uh, there were some um, uh, people from uh, Northern Africa. There were people from um, uh, Bangladesh as well. So um, different backgrounds. And yet basically. they were supporting each other. Well, they were. I mean, you know, in these kind of circumstances, people support each other, and uh, and you can see, like, human beings are human beings, and um, they can't, uh, you know. They were all uh, together in that situation. And um, uh, obviously, um, people who ran out of money uh, were given food and, um, uh, and you know, some, um, sometimes some, some cash to, um, uh, to manage. Um, that's, I've seen it with my own eyes. Um, so, it, but it was a very, very difficult times. Uh, was, was there any point early on in the journey that you, I'm sort of curious, uh, why, did, did you, at any point you think that of looking for official channels or was it just there was no possibility along those lines? And This is a very important question. As a matter of fact, it's a question that I often get asked and as clearly the general public are not aware of uh, a lot of the facts and the circumstances associated with how uh, people travel around the world as refugees and how they cross borders. So the Human Rights uh, Convention 1951, um, which Australia is a signatory to it, um, one of the first countries that signed to it, um, declare that in its, um, <coughs> in its uh, terms and items that um, a human being is allowed to cross borders without legal documentation if they are in fear of their life. Um, so 
Number one, they are not uh, queue jumpers. They're not um, um, illegal migrants. These people are refugees and people seeking asylum. Um, sadly, in my scenario, in my situation, um, the countries that I went through, none of them are signatories to this um, um, declaration and agreement. So neither Jordan nor um, Malaysia nor Indonesia. And so if I go to you, uh, the United Nations uh, Human Rights Commission office in Jakarta or in KL or in Amman, they can't do anything to me because there is no way to, um, uh, to approach them there. So there was and no official channel there? There is no official channel through these borders. You can go through Pakistan, you can go through um, um, Iran, you can go through um, Lebanon, mm -hmm. and uh, where they have refugee camps. And um, having said that, if you go through, um, I mean, you need to stay for certain length of time in a medium, uh, in a middle country uh, and sustain living there in order to apply to the United Nations uh, to be uh, allocated a country that would take a, a refugee. That can take years. So people that go through the official channels are people who, let's say, uh, go f on, a, on a skill migrant, uh, skill visa to Libya, for example, which happened to many engineers uh, and doctors uh, from Iraq. They went to Libya, they worked there, and during their stay there, they applied. Mm -hmm. And then they were granted a visa to go to, by plane, to go to America, Australia, Canada, whatever the United Nations allocate them. I didn't have that uh, opportunity. I did not have access to job because I didn't even leave with my papers. I just left with that passport and my clothes on me. Uh, and um, uh, I didn't have a place to stay uh, long enough so I can apply for uh, refugee status elsewhere. Um, the other thing is that certain people who stay in refugee camps, uh, like refugee camps in uh, Iran, for example, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, it is expected that a person that enters that camp um, as a child die of an old age before they get granted a visa. <laughs> That's how big is the problem. Um, the refugee crisis is astronomically problematic and difficult because of the number of people that are living in refugee camps. And um, they are, um, uh, the last time I checked, there were over 72 million um, displaced people. Um, 500,000 of them are in urgent need of um, attention. Um, there was a, a TV show that I was involved in, which is uh, called Go Back Where You Come From. And the TV crew were going through one of the camps and I could see on that TV uh, on the show that there was a child, a mother came with a child and said, take that child, he's sick, just take him from me. And I could see there are signs of meningi meningitis on this child, okay, from the, the footage, okay. and. Um, and I picked up the phone and I said, this kid need urgent medical attention. And they said, yes, the patient, uh, the, that child died the next day. Okay. Um, so it is horrible. And no one deserved to be left alone and treated that way. So to answer your question in a very convoluted way, I did not have the chance to go into the queue that Philip Roddick mentioned um, about queue jumpers. Okay. Uh, the only queue that I jumped um, was the queue of these people in the foyer uh, that were waiting for months and months uh, to be picked up by the boat. I jumped that queue because I was the doctor that I was picked to go uh, earlier than them. Mm. So there's a very small class of refugees that are actually being uh, catered for to by the system, really. Well, um, I mean, if you give the number of um, um, available positions for refugees around the world, it is a minute 
percentage of the refugee crisis around the world. Um, but people take um, refugees in different way and different approaches. So if you look at um, countries like um, Germany, for example, um, uh, people think that uh, Angela Merkel is a saint because of what she did with refugees. Uh, they took 1.3 million refugees in a matter of a year, um, while Australia made a big fuss about um, boat people, there were 28,000 only at the same time. Okay, during the crisis of the Middle East with ISIS, okay, which was, um, you know, displacing like millions of people. Um, uh, there were more than 20 million people displaced in a matter of a year uh, in that region because of the atrocities uh, of this radical um, um, uh, organization that, that did to, to the population uh, of the, uh, you know, regardless whether they were Muslims, Christians, Yazidis, all sorts of um, uh, um, ethnic backgrounds. Um, and um, But the way Angela Merkel did it, um, um, because it was very smart, because the Germany has a very aging population, and she participated in changing that demographic, uh, because majority of these refugees are coming there are small, young families with a lot of children. So very quickly, she revived the, um, the population of Germany. Yes, they're not um, Anglo-Saxons, they're not white, uh, but they are children, and they will grow up as Germans um, eventually. While Australia has a different approach to it, like we have the deterrence approach, despite that Australia is a, is a massive country with massive resources, uh, and very few people living in it, which doesn't make any sense because our economy, in order to be viable, we need to double our population. We can't do it through natural uh, growth that we have because we'll never get there. Uh, so we need migrants and we can't keep just taking the PhD holders and the skilled migrants. We need people who will clean the toilets. We need people who would farm the land. So you need different group of people. We can't keep going with the white Australia policy. You need people from all backgrounds um, in order. And our strength, the strength of any country is by multiculturalism and you have different colors, different people. And that's the only way humanity can survive because um, by mixing the races, mixing the colors, mixing the ethnicities and the backgrounds, you may have a chance to have peace. So then, if you were going to make any change to the Australian, let's say, border security and refugee policies, what would be the one change you would make? <laughs> well, change the attitude of politicians and um, and just give them some education, basically. I would educate politicians because, uh, unfortunately, um, the advice that our politicians get given is is ill advice based on... Um, um, deterrence and um, and fear. So um, number one is that these people that are coming here, they are not terrorists. These people are escaping from terrorism, and these people that are coming here and getting on a boat, they are wealthy. They have and they are the the cream of their. <laughs> Basically, they are they they had the means to travel. They had the means to get to where they were, and that's why they managed to get to that boat. So they are not here trying to be uh, to live on the Centrelink and um, and uh, and you know um, uh, deprive the Australian system from their resources. And um, so these are the two wrong things. And what we are doing uh, by having offshore uh, camps and um, like when I was in the detention center, um, the Australian government used to spend $160 per head per night uh, to detain us on uh, in Australia. And that was enormous amount of money, big waste, because I I met Philip Product when I was in the detention, and I said to him, I'm wasting my time here. Why don't you just tag us like yeah. you tag criminals, okay? And... Um, and just let us go to the farm, we will not be able to escape. I mean, you have the technology to do that. We can farm the land, um, you know, um, learn the language, um, you know, learn the culture, integrate with the society and provide income uh, for ourselves 
border society, instead of getting uh, holiday migrant uh, young kids coming from uh, Europe and, um, and, and using um, uh, these kind of visas. And he, he didn't answer that. So now people who are detained in Nauru and Manus Island, the government spend 400,000 plus per head to detain them per year. And paying this taxpayer's money to prove a point that is ridiculous, okay? And treating these people inhumanely, very cost ineffective, and, and uh, with no sustainability, because the minute you stop that system, the boats will come. Mm. And again, when you talk about the boats and not the boats, the vast majority of overstay visas are arrivals with visas in Sydney Airport and Melbourne Airport. And, yeah. uh, and this, the way the system work, um, if you go in into the airport, and uh, you lie on your document saying that you're coming to Australia for holiday and you pass and then you go to a police station and claim asylum, they will give you temporary protection visa and bridging visa until you are assessed. So the system encourage you to lie. But if you're in the airport, you land or in the border area and say, I wanna seek asylum, you get detained. So it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Do you think 20, 30, 40, 60 years down the track, putting ethics and humanity aside, do you think we're going to look back at this time and 2003 and all, all the troubles in Iraq, do you think we're going to look back and see a huge missed opportunity as a country? Absolutely. I mean, as Australian, uh, as a proud Australian, I think we're missing a lot on resources. We're wasting a lot of time. We're wasting a lot of money and we're missing an opportunity in Canada. The Canadians has done it a complete different way. You can buy a refugee. So if you pay 27,000 Canadian dollars, you can sponsor a refugee. And they created villages that revived cities, okay, by getting refugees, populating this land that is not occupied by anyone, and then generated um, um, a viable society. The same thing can happen here. We have cities that are dying. I, I went to Launceston, um, the other day and half of the shops are closed because people are leaving Launceston, okay? Why don't we put, you know, refugees there? These refugees, let's say, hypothetically, they will live on the Centrelink, that's fine. They still have to spend the money of the Centrelink on something. They have to go to Woolies, they have to buy toilet paper, they have to go to a barber and, and cut their hair and they have to go and buy, buy, buy clothes, buy meat, help the butcher, they have to uh, spend that money and that will generate business. Mm -hmm. This is the way I would look at it. The strength of the society is from human power. We have great examples in nations close to us, like Singapore. Singapore has nothing. There are 8 million people with a GDP stronger than Australia. I mean, this is ridiculous. The size of Singapore is the size of Sydney, okay? but they invest in their human power. They are a powerhouse, a massive powerhouse that generate extremely high GDP um, and, um, and wealth for the country based on their human beings. And we can do that. We're not less than them, but the way we look at it uh, is all about fear, is all about deterrence, is all about, oh, uh, we need to have border security. I've never heard of any uh, uh, you know, country that would use their armed forces to, uh, you know, um, tow, tow down um, boats of, um, uh, of asylum seekers. The Americans do it, okay? But the Americans do a lot of crazy things. So then let me get an understanding for what was going through your mind when you're on this boat trip towards Australia. Well, because that must have been horrible. How, how long was it and what were the circumstances like? So we took the high seas. So we took the rough waters from um, uh, the southern one um, shore of Java down to Christmas Island. It was 200 nautical miles and it was deep waters directly down to Christmas Island. And if we were going to miss Christmas Island, it would take us two weeks to get to the mainland um, if we would get there. Did you have food and supplies for two? So the, we had a lot of baguettes. We had a lot of 
canned tuna and a lot of Coca-Cola. Um, to be honest, throughout these 36 hours, I didn't have a minute of rest. I stayed awake all the time. I was very busy helping people, putting drips and putting IV lines. So I didn't have a minute of um, uh, to sit and think. And that helped me because um, a lot of people were comatose, a lot of people were very sick and I was just busy trying to help them. Um, and that helped me not to think about myself because uh, the sea was very rough, the swells were very high and it was very, very dangerous circumstances. Um, but we managed to get there. Um, and um, eventually, I mean, um, the skipper on the boat was Indonesian and he, as we got to international waters, um, um, a boat came from uh, a frigate um, um, and joined us and he jumped on that boat and left. And we were left to face the element on our own. And lucky we had an Iraqi sailor who escaped from the Iraqi Navy that could read maritime charts and he managed to steer the boat basically. And you see the skills that are coming with these people. You have a doctor, you have a naval pilot. So we were like 165 people crammed like sardines vertically, okay? Mm -hmm. There was no space to sit down. Um, uh, but among us, there were 13 doctors. Uh, there were a lot of engineers. There were a lot of people who have skills and a lot of carpenters, builders, etc. So, um, and, and they, the vast majority of people who managed to get on the boat, they were of young age, working age. And that is very important to know uh, because these people potentially, if the Australian government doesn't damage them, they potentially can become a positive influence in the society and a positive, positive impact. Instead, what we're doing, we're putting these people in detention centers, traumatizing them and making them um, damage goods. But so what happens for an engineer or a doctor or someone who was in the military? And they, I know you're an Air Force reservist, are you? So for these people, when they come to Australia, are their certifications noticed or do they have to go through and re-educate or what happens? Well, there are different specialties and different um, uh, qualifications. Um, there are um, processes in place where um, every individual has to go through. And the first process is that you get a criminal check and you mm -hmm. make sure that you're not someone who's and you know, Can I sort of ask you then, so you were on a fake passport, how, how did that process work for you? Well, it, my passport was, was I don't know if it's fake or not, to be honest, to this date, it was they got me a passport. I'm, I say it was like half, half done passport. That my name and my details on the passport were the same, okay? okay. Um, it's just the occupation on the passport was changed from a doctor to a handyman, okay. basically. But in order to apply, it, this has nothing to do with the, with the passport because they take fingerprints. And um, and they go through Interpol, they go through uh, the CIA, they go to through all the uh, organizations around the world, which is a common database, basically, from my understanding, and they do international criminal check. So if someone who's uh, uh, well known to be uh, to commit a felony or a, or a crime elsewhere around the world, mm -hmm. their prints will be there, basically. So that's the criminal check. Uh, part they do and then they do medical check to make sure that you don't have TB you don't have any communicable uh, communicable diseases or um, um, you're sick and they do a health check as well that's the first step before you even get to be released to the community and then once you're released in the community then you bring your paperwork whatever degrees you had and then you go through the qualification process and the qualification process starts by uh, sitting the English tests, so the in, uh, so the IELTS test or the uh, OET test. There are certain uh, tests that you have to go through, and if you pass that test, then you get your degree qualify um, uh, qualifications um, recognized. And that's by if you're an engineer, you have certain qualification tests that you need to go through. And if you pass them, you get recognized based on the level that you apply for. If you're a doctor, there is the AMC qualification and you sit these uh, tests. And if you pass them, you get recognized as a, as a doctor, basically. So there are processes in place. This applies to every human being that come to this country, not just refugees. This applies to um, an American, a British, 
a German, any person that come to this country want to work in their profession, they need to uh, recognize their qualification. And it's, um, it's a process that's fair and, um, and recognized um, um, in Australia, recognized in the UK, recognized in America and, and other countries. So what happens then to a refugee who's injured? Like someone, for example, who has an amputated leg or who has a medical condition, do they have no chance of coming into Australia? Are they... While you are inside the detention center, you're outside the jurisdiction of Australia. So the rules doesn't apply. Um, so when we were in the detention center, we had only the clothes that we brought with us. We had no change of clothes. I was given a towel, pair of slippers, thong, and a toothbrush and a toothpaste. Um, I literally had to borrow a marking pen to start a school, okay? Um, you have no access, that's in my times. I'm not, to, I'm, I don't know what's happening now. I can tell you about what happened to me. Um, we had no access to a newspaper, no access to a phone, no access to a TV, no access to radio, no access to anything outside the in outside environment. We had a nurse that used to come once or twice, uh, once every month or, or once every two months for a clinic. A nurse, not a doctor. In the detention center, anyone has illness or anything, the nurse will see them. His name was Andrew, okay? And funny enough, he was very cooperative. He was an, a, a lovely individual, okay? If someone get injured, people were, um, someone was um, running or doing something and then he hit his head with a, with a pole and he had a big gash on his head. They had a first aid kit. The manager of the detention center allowed me to stitch him up. Okay, I had to suture his head. So they trusted you were a doctor, they trusted... Well, they trusted that I'm someone that can stitch, okay? Because he was bleeding so heavily, they were worried that transferring him to the hospital, which is 200 k's away, okay, will be uh, causing more problems for them. So, bottom line, if someone get injured, they need to be transferred out, shipped out, uh, and then they will be under custody as a criminal in the, in the hospital, okay, with guards on there, and then once the treatment is finished, they brought back into the detention center. That doesn't influence positively or negatively their application for migration. Um, you treat it case by case when the case, when, when the situation happens. Okay, so the Australian government will, will Australia will uh, accept people who have, for example, AIDS or they're missing a leg or this is this doesn't come in at all. I don't know about a, uh, HIV, uh, but people who are missing a leg, they can apply for migration. That mm -hmm. should not discriminate. Um, I mean, I don't think there is a discrimination mm -hmm. about um, their... Uh, I mean, if you have um, infectious disease, then that's a different story. But um, um, And I don't know what's the ruling on that. Uh, but person without a leg, they, mm. they still can uh, migrate. I don't think Australian system discriminate against people with disability of that kind. So do you remember the moment when you finally, you felt that everything was going to be okay? Was there that moment that you realized, I'm going to get through this, I am going to be uh, accepted into Australia? Was, was there a moment then? Well, you need to define what's accepted into Australia. Until this moment, I'm not accepted into Australia <laughs> by many people, <laughs> okay? But you're legally here. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of people look at me and they say, and my peer look at me and they say, go back where you come from. Until now, I've been called by several of my peer that I'm a boat person and I still get referred to as a boat person. So it def defines openly I mean, to your face. Openly to my face. I mean, um, this is not unusual. You may sound surprised, but this is this is happening. This happens, and uh, unless we address our racist issues in Australia in in the public, uh, we will not grow as a nation. Um, don't get me wrong. The vast majority of Australians are very nice people. The vast majority of Australians are discreet. You know. Uh, um, 
like the vast majority of people um, would never accept racism okay uh, but there are minority who um, uh, who are still uh, you know uh, discriminating um, and I've been discriminated against I still am being discriminated against to this day by the minority and that doesn't um, you know uh, make me special it's uh, this is applicable to many people I mean human beings naturally are villagers and uh, they're, they're tribal and they want to belong to something and uh, it, it gives them a sense of power sometimes you know like Liverpool fans um, <laughs> will kill Manchester United fans because um, they are both living you know a few hundred kilometers away from each other same nation but they still fight uh, mm. because of their tribalism this mm. is this is part of the human being basic instincts unless we raise above it unless we have enough level of education and intellect we will not get rid of our racism okay and and that all goes down to the level of education the level of intellectual ability um, when you get to that level uh, you will raise above discrimination mm. and some people haven't and some people will not and sadly, some people are proud of not being raising above it. And that's what creates a problem because especially if these people have places in power, um, that can be very dangerous. I have a person in, my, in one of the hospitals I work at, in public, spoke to a community um, uh, um, of doctors and and administrators and he's, they said Munjid will never be an Australian openly you know despite that I've done everything you know to serve this country and have proven that I'm you know as good Australian as any other Australian I mean you're in the defense reserves right this is <laughs> I served in the um, uh, I served in the in the in the Royal Air Force for uh, for 10 years I'm I didn't get the opportunity to travel uh, overseas. I do my uh, my fair share. I pay my taxes. I do everything that um, uh, an Australian should do, uh, or a human being should do in this country. Um, um, I don't throw stones in in wells. I, <laughs> I I water the plants, and I and I feed my kids, and I feed other people's kids. The moment that I felt there are there were two moments inside the detention center. One moment where I felt it's the end and it's the bottom of the wheel of fortune uh, for me when um, everybody inside the detention center was processed and my name miraculously dropped off the, um, uh, of the lists of um, people being inside. And despite that I was accounted for as a detainee, my name didn't come to be assessed and processed and everybody was processed. And that was a very dark moment but I worked on changing it. And this is me. I would never take anything for granted and I would never accept um, defeat. So what happened, I was taking to uh, a separate location called the hotel, which is for the naughty people. And, um, and I managed to, before I was taking, I realized that there is a problem happening here. What, what gets you sent there? Well, I caused a lot of trouble. I did. I did um, vocalize um, my human rights and our human rights. Um, there was a clear violation of human rights inside the detention center. People were beaten. People were spat at. People were called names. I was called nine eight two for ten months. That's against the human rights. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I was not called by my name. No human being should be called by a number. Um, and is that uh, part of policy? Like, what, why does that happen? Is that part of policy? Or is I, that can't, I can't comment on behalf of the Department of Immigration, but clearly it was um, what happened to us was a, a systematic approach to deter us um, from um, persisting in applying for um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the right to stay in Australia. Um, the, the only government official that spoke to us was a lady from the Department of Immigration um, at the beginning uh, when when we first um, got into the detention center she said the Australian people don't like you the government don't want you here um, and you will stay here indefinitely we don't know when you will be processed 
But if you um, come to us and say, I want to go back, we will facilitate your return mm. as a matter of urgency. And um, um, I entered Australian land on the 8th of November 1999. And the first time anyone asked me what was my name was on the 17th of May 2000. During that period, I existed as 982. This is the whole time that you were there in the detention center itself? Yes. That was the whole time I was in the detention center. Okay. And then I was released on the 26th of August. So in order to overcome this difficulty that I had when my name dropped off the, off the list, I gave one of the detainees that was processed my mum's number. Mm-hmm. And when they re- were released, they called my mum kindly. My mum hired a lawyer in Sydney who went to the Department of Immigration and said, this person exists inside your detention. I'm representing them. Okay. Okay. And that's how I got represented. Mm-hmm. And then miraculously, within six weeks, I was released. Okay. So the day, um, May. By the way, did your mum know you were still alive until that point? Had yes, I can, I can tell you that. The only reason it was, it took a human kindness. A mm. person, when we were in Christmas Island, um, we were taken by the federal police and they were lovely. They took us to a basketball stadium. There were five of them. And I even uh, was told the first Australian joke. He introduced me to his deputy and he said, this tall guy, he was six foot something. He showed me his clavicle and there was a scar over here. And he said, when you get out of detention center, I want you to go to them to this place called Tasmania. We had to chop off one of his heads and a few of his fingers to look like that. I didn't understand the joke back then, but now I do. So. On the third day, while I was in Christmas Island, I was asked by the federal police to join them to intercept another boat as an interpreter. Oh, okay. So we left on two barges. On one barge was the captain and his deputy. And on another barge was myself with another officer. That officer is a person that I met for the first time and the last time, and hopefully I'll meet him soon. Um, He looked at me as a human being. And he said to me, when was the last time you spoke to your family. And I said, just before leaving Jakarta. And he said, so your parents don't know if you're alive or dead. And I said, no, they don't. So he said, what I'm gonna do is breaking the law, I'm putting my job on the line, and don't you dare tell anyone. Mind you, I tell everybody now. And he said, sit on the ground, and he pulled out a satellite from from his pocket, and he said, this is the phone, call your family, tell them that you're safe. Mm. This guy didn't have to do what he did, but he Mm. did it because he was trying to help another human being in need of help. And as a result of that, I managed to contact my mum, managed to tell her that I'm safe, and she continued to live till the day I was released. Oh. She passed away recently, like well, six years ago. Okay, uh, so she did know that you were finally released. So she did, no, she came to Australia. I managed. To, she managed to migrate to Australia on a parent-sponsored migration scheme. Okay, that's another story, which is a good story, okay? Because I sponsored her visa, mm. basically and paid for her Medicare and everything, which is fine. Um, So I'm forever grateful to this man that he, because of him, my mum survived. And because of him, I am who I am now and where I am. And to his credit, a lot of what I do is goes to him because he made me who I am. I decided that if there is a person that need help at any time, any point of time, I would do it regardless of the consequences mm. because you know you may never get that chance again mm. okay and that's why um, um, I'm forever grateful for this for this guy so anyway the happy moment in my life okay was at 2 a.m. Craig Wallace came to me um, in the detention center and in the morning there was a group of people getting released uh, getting flown from the Derby to Brisbane and but he decided that I shouldn't go with them and he gave me my visa and he said um, you have your visa okay and um, and you can walk out of the detention center in the morning and I said okay that was it and then they let me go outside the detention center everybody was flown to Brisbane Um, uh, the gates opened and they said walk to the main street 
Um, they actually, as a matter of fact, they escorted me to the main street and they said, you, sto you stop in the stop station and there will be a Greyhound bus coming from Derby to Broome. You can catch the bus and then you can fly from there. What do you have? Do you have money on you? Do you so I had money that I brought with me. They changed a couple of hundreds, I think, for me. And they gave me the rest. And they said, and I had my own clothes that, that I brought with me, which was so funny. And I thought that this guy was trying to punish me, but because I caused a lot of embarrassment for him. But what an opportunity he gave me. So I took the bus from Derby to Broome, to Perth, to Adelaide, to Melbourne, to Sydney. And I traveled around Australia mm. thanks to him. Yeah. So it was, it was a moment where I felt a great relief. And then the new struggle start is to try to forge your path inside Australia. And were you able, obviously you became a doctor, so... <laughs> so I was released on the 26th of August 2000. I worked as a toilet cleaner at the beginning. Um, and then I went to the Centrelink and they helped me with getting my CV. And then I sent my CV to every single hospital in Australia. And within two weeks, I got two job interviews. And I started working as a doctor on the 1st of November 2000. So I do apologize for taxpayers that I wasted their money for two months.